By All Means Graphics is your hometown print shop in the heart of downtown Northfield. We love working with local businesses, large and small, nonprofits, groups, organizations, and individuals like you. From business cards to banners, By All Means Graphics is here to assist you from concept to completion. The team at By All Means Graphics will treat you right, so stop in to 17 Bridge Square next to the Chamber of Commerce or call 507-663-7937 and let our stellar team of Stephanie, Sarah, Grace, Rob, and me, Ronica, help you with any of your printing and graphic needs. I love coming to Twins Games. Okay, first, let's go play bags on the Schneiderman's Lawn in Wright Field. And we can't miss the celebrity bartender at the Great Duck Deck. That's my aunt. She loves going to, quote, Twins Games. But really, Target Field is just a social event for her. Oh, we must go visit Sue, the organist. Taking in all that Target Field has to offer. That's our Twins tradition. Come share yours. Season ticket holders enjoy up to 20% off food and beverage all season. Go to twinsbaseball.com slash season tickets. 902 on KYMN FM 95.1, beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. You are now listening to Legal Talk with uh, Minnesota State Supreme Court Justice Gordon Moore. My name is Rich Larson. Good morning, Gordon. How are you? Good morning, Rich. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's going to be warm enough today, isn't it? Oh my goodness, uh, we're gonna we're gonna be somewhere around a hundred degrees today, man. That's uh, that, I guess I'm I'm guessing uh, you don't you're glad you don't have to wear the uh, the judicial robes today. I'm, yeah, those I, look warm. I've done a few outdoor weddings in in conditions like this with that black robe. And oh man, frankly, you're melting. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. <laughs> it, it's tough. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, so. Um, what we want to do first, I think, is uh, just talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, what the Supreme Court has been up to since last. I wasn't here last time you you uh, you and Jeff talked, uh, but over the last month, and maybe talk a little bit about how the, the end of the term also and and how that all works. Sure. Well, the state Supreme Court term is a little different than the federal mm-hmm. Supreme Court term. Our term starts in September and goes through June. So last week we completed oral arguments and in our cases for the term and and we adjourned for the for the term. So between now and, you know, the start of the next term, the push is to get our opinions finished. Okay. But well, we won't have any more oral arguments unless we have some uh, unforeseen extraordinary circumstances. Okay. The U.S. Supreme Court, um, I think, is also finished with oral arguments, mm-hmm. but they generally have to get their work done by the end of June or oh, they do. early July. Okay. Yes, and so over the next two weeks, you will see a host of decisions being issued by the U.S. Supreme Court. Yep. Our our court continues to issue decisions on Wednesday mornings at ten, and we'll continue to do that, but. Yeah, it's a busy time for the court because, uh, you know, after all the term oral arguments, we have uh, obviously work to do, and our current law clerks are only with us till the end of July. Oh, yeah. And we have a brand new crop coming in the first day of August, and so obviously we're trying to get as much done as we can before, right. the, before the rookies come on board. How, how does that work I mean, uh, with, with clerks? Are you able, do you hire your own clerks? Is it sort of something you all work together to, to hire a, a group? Does the state uh, get involved in that? How does that all work? It's it's a process that I like to equate to the NFL draft a little oh, bit. We, okay. have a, we have a pool of applicants right. uh, through the state 
uh, uh, employment portal. And for any interested candidates out there, generally the uh, Supreme Court and the State Court of Appeals start taking applications in usually about January or February. And, you know, we're hiring for the 23-24 term. So right. the, the people that are starting in August were hired last year. And uh, we go through a pretty elaborate uh, vetting process. We interview 20, around 25 candidates for 11 positions mm -hmm. on our court. And uh, we choose in the order of seniority. So I made the, you know, yeah. uh, comment about the draft. I draft seventh currently. Right. But you know what? It's, uh, there's, as to continue the metaphor, there's a lot of good players available. Uh, <laughs> we have, we are blessed, uh, frankly, with the, high quality of candidates uh, oh, i would think so our district courts unfortunately the you know the number of applicants for district court clerk positions has dropped precipitously uh because of just i think economic uh, priorities and realities so yeah we we interview and then we'll make offers generally by the end of the month okay um, and okay. so each uh, justice in our court had well each associate justice has one what we call elbow clerk or main clerk that's assigned to work with that justice. And okay. then we each of us share a clerk with another associate justice. The chief justice has two clerks because her work includes administrative obligations. And frankly, sometimes some of the bigger cases we're doing. And mm -hmm. so she has two clerks that work. But it's important to know that the clerks work for the court, not for the justice. Right. This isn't a one-on-one -on -one deal. I mean, we have clerks that are doing cases in other chambers. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's always, frankly, inspiring to see the caliber of people coming on board. I just I look at them and I wonder about myself when I was 25 years right. old and just look at right. them and shake my head. Right. What, what do you look for when you're selecting a, a clerk? Personally, it's, it's important for me, obviously. I mean, we, we need people that can hit the ground running on, on writing mm -hmm. and analysis. Sure. We don't have the time to teach that. And so that by necessity requires people that have generally had pretty good academic experience and, you know, that indicates some understanding of the uh, analytics. And then the writing is we look at writing samples, sure. we get references, and generally people who have been on a, a moot court, which is a, a law school oral argument competition mm -hmm. where you write briefs, or one of our law journals yep. where you have to, you know, really subject your writing to critique. Because I'll tell you, for some of our law clerk candidates, and frankly for lawyers, it's it's not easy to be critiqued. And when you come on the Supreme Court, right. you have to put your ego on the shelf because right. you are going to get challenged. Uh, uh, and, you know, sometimes the A students haven't been challenged that much. Things have come pretty pretty naturally mm -hmm. to them. And it comes as a little bit of a wake-up call when they get that first bench memo draft back and yeah. it's chewed up. Yeah. And so you need people that are mature, resilient. And personally for me, I do look at... Uh, and I think our whole court looks at sort of the big picture of life experiences, um, you know, backgrounds, mm -hmm. uh, interesting things about people. Uh, we benefit as a court from a diverse group of law clerks. Sure. We, you know, we don't want everybody from the same law school that has kind of the same profile. Right, right. And so we've right. been pretty good, I think, at doing that. Uh, and it makes for a better group. You may have said this. I might have missed it. Are the clerks drawn... Uh, 
just from Minnesota, or do, do you get applications from all over the place? All over the place. We we have done some outreach uh, to law schools in Chicago, Indiana, nice. uh, uh, Washington University in, in St. Louis, just to try to, frankly, diversify mm-hmm. our, our group of applicants. Yeah. We have had... Uh, the clerks on our court who have been students at Harvard Law School, other Ivy League schools, Michigan. Yep. But we we are a taxpayer funded organization, obviously, and the and so the majority of our clerks, in fact, the vast majority, do come from our three law schools in Minnesota: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, St. Thomas, Mitchell Hamlin, and of course the University of Minnesota. Right, right, right. I guess you know what I didn't realize that uh, William Mitchell and Hamlin had merged. They did. I, okay. They did. Yes. They, that was a number of years ago, uh, about the time that St. Thomas was talking about for right. law school. Okay. You know, I, I think from my personal feeling, I, I think there's sort of a sense that three is probably the right number of law schools for the state in okay. terms of the number of jobs available and the number of interested candidates. Mm-hmm. And I think the merger there is going quite well. That's good. Yeah. they're good. They're, uh, they have a... You know, each of our three law schools has a little different profile, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes a significantly different profile. I mean, you've got the U of M is obviously land-grant university, yep. academic focus. Uh, Mitchell Hamlin uh, has tended to be a little bit more of a nuts and bolts, practical sort mm-hmm. of experience, and they mm-hmm. have very flexible degree opportunities. Uh, people are doing, um, you know, a lot of online learning. I sure. mean, Ham- Mitchell Hamill was doing that prior to COVID, frankly. Yeah. And it allows second to career folks, people yeah. in outstate Minnesota to, to access a law education without mm-hmm. having to devote, you know, three years to living in St. Paul. Right. Um, St. Thomas has a, a similar profile, but I think they have really uh, gone above and beyond on the whole notion of, you know, kind of morality and the law and looking at legal ethics and the, the obligations of uh, attorneys vis-a-vis other other fe- features. And um, we've had clerks from all three um, schools at our clerk at our court, and will again this year mm-hmm. with uh, with outstanding results. Excellent, excellent. So the um, uh, the, the court has uh, uh, has heard a few arguments in the last month. Um, you can't talk about, uh, you can't give any sort of opinions or anything like that. Right. But what, uh, maybe what, what were some of the, 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 the bigger uh, cases that you heard? In June, I think the biggest case we heard was the Minneapolis Police Department case. Sure. Uh, the question of whether the Minneapolis Charter requires the mayor to employ a certain number of police officers beyond just the city council funding those officers. Okay. Uh, the Minneapolis Police Department has dropped uh, well below that number. Yep. And so some uh, concerned citizens on the north side of Minneapolis brought a, a lawsuit in district court seeking a legal writ called a writ of mandamus to require the mayor to actually hire uh, the number of officers that uh, the residents believe the city charter requires. Mm-hmm. And it's a complicated case. Uh, I can't get into the nuances nope. of it, but I can tell you that it's generated a lot of interest. And, mm. and oh yeah, and you know we're going to have um, a decision issued on that soon with a well an order issued because the district court writ was supposed to be returned to the court by the end of June here, so we had to get something out, and then there'll be a more detailed opinion to follow. But we had a number of other uh, very challenging cases in June involving civil procedure issues, criminal law questions. Uh, we have the the issue relating to the changes in the hemp legislation. Oh, uh, yeah. The yeah, yeah. state 
decriminalize the possession of mm-hmm. hemp and how does that intersect with marijuana right. for purposes of uh, drug possession. Uh, some you know, challenging questions there. And so we'll be wrangling with those issues over the next few months yeah. to try to get decisions done. But yeah, the term has been a, um, a challenging term. Uh, lots of, I would say, uh, statutorily complex decisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they touch on all different areas of law. But as I keep getting reminded, they don't get to the Supreme Court because they're easy cases. Right. So they, they just right. don't. Right. Uh, right. You know, the way they, and, you know, we do take 90% of them. Some of them are direct appeals. So it's, uh, I just urge uh, uh, interested parties to just keep an eye on the state court's website. Obviously, the press will report on the, yep. on the major cases, yep. but they'll be, they'll be coming out. Uh, over the, the coming weeks, and 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 those those opinions are the opinions that are ready each week are released on Wednesday mornings. Wednesday morning at ten o'clock sharp. Ten uh, state state court website. Yes. Okay. Uh, they they are issued. There's a um, a syllabus or a summary of the opinions that's on the website, and then you have to click uh, to get into the merits of it to yeah. read it. But absolutely, every every opinion we issued is issue is available that sure. way. Interesting. So this actually um, brings us to the kind of the meat of the conversation that uh, we want to have today. Um, <clears throat> I still haven't figured out how to work t- technology in the studio yet. Um, as as everyone knows, I, I don't think we can uh, not talk about the fact that there's a there's a pretty important decision on Roe versus Wade that's that's due in the next couple of weeks, and uh, there was a leaked uh, um, uh, opinion uh, that, that essentially said the Supreme Court's going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, the interesting thing, well, there's a million interesting things about that, but one of the interesting points about that is that's a leaked opinion. That's not an official opinion, and that's something that uh, Justice Alito wrote um, whenever, shortly after the, uh, the, the oral arguments were presented. Um, the court has not issued the actual opinion yet, which means there's still a decision being made, or there, or there was still a decision at that point. I want to talk about how that works. We want to talk about how that works. How how is it a collegial court? And maybe we can. Uh, uh, Jeff had to ask me this morning what 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 is a collegial court. So maybe we can define what a collegial court is, and then how does a collegial court go about making a decision? How does right. that work? Well, great questions, uh, Rich. Uh, a collegial court I would define is a court that uh, issues decisions by a collegial process, Mm -hmm. a collective process, as opposed to a series of just individual judgments, you know, and it it applies to appellate court decisions because district court decisions are obviously issued just by one judge. And so that judge has to decide the case. But when the court of appeals sits in panels of three and the Supreme court sits in, in our entire court seven, you know, we have to come to a consensus decision in order to issue a, an opinion. We have to have obviously a majority of the court or four, four justices for a particular position. And I think the benefits of collegial decision-making, um, frankly, are, are that the, the politics are, are taken out of it or at least dramatically uh, diminished. Okay. You know, if, if every decision is, is defined by 
well, you know, those justices are on team A and those justices are on team B. We know before the decision's even been made, you know, how it's likely to break down. Sure. And so on the, you know, United States Supreme Court, you see a lot of discussion about, you know, the six, you know, quote, conservative justices Mm -hmm. and the three, quote, liberal justices Mm -hmm. appointed by, you know, presidents from different parties. Right. And in the state Supreme Court, we have seven members. Five of us were appointed by Democratic governors, mm-hmm. either Governors Dayton or Walls, mm-hmm. and then two uh, justices by um, Governor Plenty, a Republican. Mm-hmm. And we have had, you know, some of our, um, I think at least one, possibly two, uh, may have been appointed to the Court of Appeals initially by Jesse Ventura. Okay. Entirely, entirely uh, independent party, different yep. candidate. That's a whole different animal right Yeah, there. it is. And so we you know it's really important to us that the the people see that the politics relating to the appointment process doesn't affect the outcome of the case mm-hmm. in other words when you're appointed to a court the politics are set on the shelf right. i mean that's you don't go on a court ideally to yep. be advancing a particular partisan agenda you're trying to get the law right right and obviously how you view the law is influenced by your background your experience and in things that you believe but in a collegial court decisions the best decisions i think are a process of that collective thought process brought to tough cases sure and so for instance in conference and i think this is the way it works with most federal courts including scotus um you know a justice is a, is um, assigned the case uh, preliminarily and reports on it and then other justices in the order of seniority respond in terms of how they they feel mm-hmm. and so this is done in a very formal process you know the, these are not water cooler discussions or you know half the court goes out to lunch and sits at you know Arby's and decides you know what to do I mean that's wearing your robes trying not to get Arby's sauce on exactly there, right? <laughs> we're you know that's not how this works yeah uh, we don't pre-conference case we do our individual reading and we go to the conference, you know, with some views in mind, but hopefully an open mind and, and a willingness to reexamine our, our perspectives on things. Right. And, you know, when I was a district court judge, one of the instructions we always give jurors, we always tell jurors, is you have to have the ability to reexamine your views, even strongly held views, um, if Upon reflection, your views maybe aren't well supported, maybe don't have the law behind them, right. or maybe just, you know, you didn't think about that point. Or sure. you didn't. And so that's, you know, we ask jurors to sit around that room and talk about their views. And, and this is a similar process where we go into conference prepared with questions and thoughts about how the case should come out. But then you hear your colleagues and, you know, on a collegial court, you are you have an open mind to those views okay. and you are not there to just vote because well team I'm on team A and team A is going to vote this way no matter you know what's right. going on right. that's right. not the way this works and so you know I think collegiality includes a respect for each other a respect for views and frankly a respect for differences of opinion sure. and I can tell you Rich I've had many cases in my two years in the court where the comments of my colleagues have changed my view of the case. Right. I realized that I was missing something or I hadn't given a case enough attention or, I mean, like a, a precedent case 
Or, you know, upon reflection, I hadn't thought about the consequences of a particular decision. Yeah. You know, what what does this mean? How is right. this going to be re- looked at by the by the public? Right. Because, you know, the public's trust and confidence of the courts right now is, I mean, it, it, frankly, it's, it's, it's a, a critically important thing. The courts have served a huge role in adjudicating some very challenging disputes between, you know, the other branches of government, yeah. election issues, yeah. COVID issues. I mean, my gosh, the list goes on and on. And so for those decisions to, to be respected and frankly followed, I think citizens have to have confidence in the process. Mm-hmm. And so the danger with leaked opinions is you, you're getting a snapshot of one justice's views mm-hmm. that may, may or may not be Right. What, what others sign on to. I mean, we have had, you know, decisions flip in our court after circulation of opinions mm-hmm. because, you know, the writing has convinced people that their initial thoughts weren't right. Sure. Um, get, sort of touching on that point, and again, I'm really not asking you to talk about uh, this opinion that's coming from, from the Supreme Court of the United States. Right. Um, but there is... Um, there are I, scuttlebutt. There's rumors that um, uh, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts is leaning on at least one, if not a couple, members of the uh, court to um, conservative members of the court to change their opinion. And um, he Roberts, you know, he, Roberts when he came onto the court um, called Roe versus Wade a um, uh, a decided case and and wasn't interested in in working on, on on Roe versus Wade anymore. Um, and I, I get the feeling, I think a lot of us get the feeling that Roberts would like to preserve things the way they are. Um, and he, he's been leaning maybe, possibly, on a couple of the, uh, and maybe that's the wrong way to put it. I mean, we're talking about the Supreme Court of the United States here. Right. But how does that work? I mean, is, is it okay for, like if Chief Justice Gilday were to come to you and say, you know, I really think you need to reconsider your opinion and this is why. Does that happen? Would that happen? You know, it hasn't happened. Okay. Uh, uh, the chief justice in our court uh, is very respectful for the justice's views. Um, comments made in conference, you know, are, are obviously confidential. Yep. We, we have we have to have trust in, in what stays in those conferences, you know, has to be there. We honor each other's um, differences. We mm-hmm. don't we don't agree all the time, but. You know, we we haven't had that kind of case to my time on the court right. where, you know, somebody's putting a knee in somebody's back and saying, you've got to do this. I mean, that, yeah. frankly, I think there'd be a lot of backlash to that. I mean, we're yeah. all on the court because we've got, you know, legal careers and experience and nobody wants to be, you know, unduly pressured. That said, the chief justice in any court has an institutionalist role mm-hmm. where they are the leader of that court. I mean, they are the leader of the court system and a chief justice has to be concerned about the appearance of, of the court's uh, decisions and the activities the court's doing. And I think it's been widely reported that, you know, Chief Justice Roberts is an institutionalist. Yes, he is. And so that's part of the whole collegial court thing. I mean, the court issues decisions as a court you know, representing the institutions, not just not necessarily just the views of one or two justices. Mm-hmm. And so I think the concern that's that exists generally, and I'm not talking about any particular case, but if if cases are just decided on the basis of 
of you know what are perceived to be partisan political views, mm-hmm. then the institution suffers. Um, you know, Brown versus Board of Education. Right. I mean, Chief Justice Warren. I think it's widely reported worked very hard to get to consensus for a unanimous court there yeah. because of the importance of that case yes. regarding school desegregation right. because he was he was a product of the political system he had been governor of California he understood that it was a watershed case you know and it was not going to be um, well regarded by certain parts mm-hmm. of the country right. and for that decision to be enforceable it had to have the the force of unanimity yeah. and so that's where the process of considering views to try to get to consensus is so important mm-hmm. if the okay. court generally feels it's important to speak with one voice then sometimes that requires a leavening of views. Justices have to do some give and take. Mm-hmm. And this is what happens on, on collegial courts, that you know justices have to decide, is this the case to dissent? Or is this the case where I'm going to stand my ground and I'm not given an inch on this? Right, right. Or is there an area for compromise here that could help the court move the law forward as as an entity right and you know those are those are the types of discussions that happen in appellate courts yeah i have to say it 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 to me it, it what you're describing sounds a lot more likely uh that could happen in the minnesota state supreme court right now than the uh united states supreme court I'm really concerned, based yeah. on what I've read, about the United States Supreme Court with this leak investigation and law clerks being asked to turn over cell phones for review. I mean, you know, the end of the term is a challenging time in any appellate court. SCOTUS, you know, given the gravity of the cases, I just I can't even imagine, Rich, how much tension there must be right now. I mean, you've got right. justices that have expressed uh, a lack of trust in colleagues yeah. and you know you've got other justices that are trying to preserve the you know the court's institution uh by you know trying to tamp down some of those things but i don't know we'll have to see what this leak investigation finds the rumors are flying as you indicate about yep. you know who would have a motive to do something like that it's an extraordinary breach of protocol and I guess stay tuned. I don't want to join in speculate no. speculation at all. I do caution listeners, however, I'd be very surprised if the opinion in the it's the Dobbs case that's going to be mm-hmm. issued, and it'll be un- undoubtedly one of the last cases of the term. No question. And end of you know the well July first was July first is Friday. I, that might, yeah, that yes might, it is. That yes might it will is. be the the time for it. Yeah. I. Um, I'd be very surprised if that leaked opinion is the final uh, word on this from the court. That's that's yeah, that's really interesting. I you know I just can't I cannot recall um, in in the amount of time that I've spent paying attention uh, to the Supreme Court, which is you know a solid thirty years at this well even longer than that. I don't recall this kind of media scrutiny about the inner workings of the Supreme Court and it, like the cracks in the like. The Supreme Court, we want tr- transparency in our in our government as much as possible. Maybe not necessarily as much from the Supreme Court in the inner workings, because because like you say, there has to be a lot of give and take and there has to be a lot of conversation. Um, but it's um, it's just really interesting to see that uh, 
the, the the way the media works these days and the way the spotlight gets to every corner, it's now found the Supreme Court as well, which is, I don't know if it's good or bad. Well, I think the the Supreme Court has traditionally been, you know, cloaked in an era of yeah. mystery. Yeah. Um, you know, writers like Jeffrey Tubin and others have written books about, you know, the inner workings of the court, but those are closely held secrets. I mean, you know, law clerks take uh, a their responsibility with regard to confidentiality at any court very seriously. And, and, you know, so there's not, you know, you're not getting those sort of, you know, um, tell all books like right. have come after presidential administrations right. where people want to say things. Um, there's vastly different views on this. Some people think, and I, there's a recent commentator in, in Minnesota that noted that, he thought more transparency would be actually better for the public to see what's going mm-hmm. on rather than this, you know, almost like papal type mystique that goes into, you know, decision making mm-hmm. and then the white smoke comes up yeah. and you have this decision <laughs> and where does it come from? Right. Um, but I think the consensus that I've read is that people understand that, you know, uh, decision making in cases like that cannot be done in the public. I yeah. mean, you've got to have the ability to put together a decision with a give and take without every move being reported right. by tweet or something right. like that. That's not going to, ha- that's, that would not work. So it's, it's undoubtedly done some s- serious uh, damage to the Supreme court and how that is remedied and what the long-term implications of that are. Yeah. You know, it's unfortunately rich with, with the uh, U S Supreme court has been caught up in, in confirmation politics mm-hmm. and that has really hurt. I think the institution there's yeah. just, it's really unfortunate because yeah. You know, um, the the court's decisions are incredibly important, and you know we need to be focusing on the merits of what they're saying, not this sort of right. sideshow stuff. Right. And then that's been really unfortunate. Right. You know, un- unlike Congress, um, y- the Supreme Court is not um, there to necessarily. Uh, create laws in somebody's best interest. They are there to, to interpret the Constitution, which is something that uh, that's a whole different yes, a whole different thing. It is to say what the law is is different than legislating from the bench. I mean, exactly. you hear that negative yeah. term, you know, that activist activist judges, you know, yeah, right, and and judges on both sides yeah. of the political spectrum have been accused of judicial activism. That's right. a frequent uh, criticism, and so. You know, saying what the law is, is the duty of the court. That's yeah. pretty fundamental. It's right. Chief Justice John Marshall, our first Chief Justice, and being able to, um, you know, keep the legislative uh, body within the bounds of the Constitution yeah. with regard to what they're doing, but giving deference where deference is due. And that's part of our three-legged uh, government that yeah. we have, and it's a, it's a challenging balance. And, you know, the court has, uh, you know, not the ability to raise money or to, you know, raise armies to enforce its decisions. So the court's relying on the integrity of its process and its decisions for those decisions to be followed. Yeah. And yeah. that's where, you know, things are been really challenging now. We hopefully can get past this term and get things settled down a little right. bit, but it's certainly been a tumultuous time. Sure has. The good news is I, in St. Paul that those dynamics are not at play. I want to emphasize that to the listeners. Yeah, it, our, it, our court is collegial. We we are uh, we respect and like each other. Um, obviously, there's differences in views, but that's to be a, that's to be assumed. 
um, separate writings are done uh, collegially uh, and with respectfully when necessary. And, you know, we're getting through our calendar without, uh, without undue delay. Right. Well, uh, Justice Moore, we are at the, uh, the end of our time for this month. Uh, looking forward to, I, this is really, I really enjoy these conversations, sir. This is, this is, I, this is really fun. So yeah, I do too. Uh, uh, happy Juneteenth too, to, uh, to our audience and to, and to, uh, you, to you. If you've got two seconds, I want to ask you one real quick thing. And I'm not sure if you can talk about this or you Northfield city offices are open today and it's a federal holiday, but the state has not recognize Juneteenth as a state holiday. How does that, do you know how that works? Well, I don't think it's been recognized as a paid holiday in, in okay. the state of Minnesota. It's been recognized by the governor and the legislature for the importance of it. But I don't believe that, I, well, I know for a fact, it's not a paid state holiday okay. uh, for at least the judicial branch. And I think uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and some cities and counties have done individual differences of things. Yeah, uh, It's obviously a federal holiday. Right. But, you know, like, you know, Columbus Day, for example, which is, I believe, still a federal holiday that, it may, you know, maybe not being is recognized in every right. every state or municipality. Um, I, I think there have been bills introduced in the state legislature to make it a state mm -hmm. holiday. I'm not sure where that stands right now. Perhaps mm -hmm. Representative Lippert or uh, Senator Drayheim would have a better sense sure. of that. But it, it is uh, clearly an important um, moment for our country's reflection, and, and you'll see a lot of interesting things. And the judicial branch is doing some commemorative things today um, online uh, right now to talk about the importance of Juneteenth and what it means to our legal system. Yeah. Um, particularly given uh, the events of the past few years. It's really important to, for us to reflect on that. It's, it's a landmark day in our country's history and uh, should be uh, acknowledged. As yes, so. yes, I totally agree. Indeed. Pleasure to be here, Rich. Thanks Thank for you. having me back. Thank you, Justice Moore. We will uh, be back third Monday of every month. So we'll see you uh, uh, a couple sometime in July. I'm not sure exactly the date, but it'll be the third Monday. Sounds great. All right. Thank you, folks, and you are listening to KYMN 95.1, The One. 95.1, The One. I'm holding on to something.